Now, uh, if this is your first time with us or it is your first time in a while, um, we took a break last week from Leviticus and we're in Leviticus chapter 19 today. And as you see on the screen, uh, the message for today is entitled Living a Christian Life, Living a Christian Life. And you may remember for those of you that have been journeying through Leviticus with us since January, uh, that a few weeks ago uh, when we hit Leviticus 16, it was the Day of Atonement. And then once that chapter was done, we we were turning the hinge, if you will, and this idea of this holy God, holy people, God establishes and and lays out all the rituals by which the people of Israel were supposed to be following, and then the rest of the book of Leviticus, where we are now, is this way in which we're applying it, way in which we're living it out, and there's some major applicable points that we've been seeing all throughout this, and I think today is one for certain, some things that we here as the church in 2021 can see and how we should live those things out. Uh, Specifically today in chapter 19, it points with that continual theme of holy God, holy people, and and how we live that out to the people that are right around us. Christians are called to live lives that are set apart from the world around them. Live a life that is set apart, that, that glorifies God, and is a life that is walking in obedience to God. Now, before we dive into today's passage, I want to bring a passage of Scripture before you that I think is very fitting. It's something that Jesus says, and he actually is quoting something from the passage we see today. And it's from Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus is asked in 36 first, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so I'm reminded also of a message that Pastor Walter preached way back at the beginning of this series when we were in chapter 5. And you can go back on the website or on on Facebook and and listen to it. It was called the Perpendicular Grace of God. And remember that idea of perpendicular. You've got the vertical and you've got the horizontal. And as Christians, we have been reconciled to God because of what Jesus has done on the cross, defeating sin and death, resurrecting from the grave, taking God's wrath in our place. Those of us that repent of our sin and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that God resurrected him from the grave, we are saved. And so we have been reconciled vertically with God. But in doing that also, we are agents of reconciliation, ministers of reconciliation on the horizontal to the people that are around us. And so keep that fresh in your mind as we see this today. Now, this is a lengthy passage, and as you know, we do uh, stand to honor the reading of God's Word, uh, but I'm going to do something just slightly different. I'm not going to read the entire text ahead of time. I'm going to read it as we go through it, so I'll have you stay seated, but I want to point out just a couple of things to you first. In this passage, we see that God commands His people. He commands the people of Israel, He commands His people to be devoted to Him, to be devoted to holy living, and be devoted to loving others. So if you're taking notes, I hope you are. The first point that you can write down is a devotion to the holy, one, true God. A devotion to the holy, one, true God. Listen to the word of the Lord, chapter 19, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, let's stop there for a minute. Every time we turn a page, Uh, Turn a chapter in the book of Leviticus. We always usually see that line. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, God speaks. God is talking to Moses of what Moses is to declare to the people of Israel. He didn't have to speak. 
He could have just gone about on his own and said, you know what, you are sinful people. I'm wiping you out. I want nothing to do with you. I'm not going to have a redemptive plan. I'm not going to save you from Egypt. Forget you people. I'm done with you. He could have easily said that because he is a holy God and we are sinful people. And yet he gives a charge every time he speaks to Moses of how the people are to live, how the people are to walk in obedience to him. He does so because he, are, he is calling out to his covenanted people, the people in which he has made a covenant with, those people that he loves, his covenant people that he wants the best for. So he provides the way and the teachings to them. Look at verse 2. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We see God here make this proclamation that they should be holy because he is holy. In this chapter alone, there are numerous times where God says, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God. Over and over he says it. It's at the beginning of this chapter and at the end of this chapter that God references what he did through them in Exodus with the Exodus event. Matter of fact, Leviticus 19.36, the second half, 36b if you will, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. His declaration of being holy and rescuing his people points to the beauty of who he is. It points to the beauty of his character. He is the covenant Lord, loving and caring for his covenant people. He has made the way of redemption for the nation of Israel through the Exodus event. And he has done the same for us today, all who are in Christ through the precious blood of his son Jesus that died on Calvary's cross. Thanks be to God for that. God is holy and how is God pictured holy? Through this book, through this chapter. Well, there's two quick ways. God is the standard of holiness because of who he is. He is I am. He is the one who spoke everything into existence. And so therefore, if he is God alone, no other gods are greater than him, little g gods, none are greater than him. If he is that person as he is, as he says he is, then that's the standard. That's what we follow after. Secondly, God is pure. Since God is holy, we look to Jesus as the one who represents holy living. Jesus is our example by which we live holy lives. Yes, we follow the commandments that God lays out. We take the applicable points away from this. We chew on it. We meditate on it. And we live it out. But we look through the gospel accounts and we see all the examples by which Jesus set. And we see that that is who we are to imitate. Throughout this chapter we also see references to that of the Ten Commandments. And you guys know that if, as I've been preaching that you, you, I reference Ken and Matthews a lot. I love his commentary on the book of Leviticus, and he says this in his commentary regarding chapter 19. Although Moses is the one who addresses the congregation, it is not he but the Lord who originated the law. The law is not a human creation by itself because it is given by the covenant Lord. The exhortations were to be obeyed, not to be questioned. 
Moreover, the very fact that it was God who gave the law means that the law, although ancient and delivered in a different culture, contains a message that transcends a particular time and people. Therein are important underlying principles that are relevant to any generation of believers, including ours. I think that's a profound statement. It points to the beauty of God's word and the truth of it, how the Holy Spirit reveals things to us, and it's all applicable to us. It is God's literal breathe-out word. The call to be holy is for all, even today. Recall with me the teachings of Peter. Remember last fall we went through the book of 1 Peter. And in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 14 through 16, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And so there has to be this devotion to the holy, one, true God. God declares it, we must be obedient to that. We must be devoted to him. Secondly, we must be devoted, have this devotion to holy living. A devotion to holy living. Now you see there on the screen, it indicates two sections of verses. 19, 3 through 8 and 19 through 32, those verses. They cover the same kind of area of subject matter, so that's why I'm addressing both at the same time under this point. Now, as you have that point, if you want to write a little sub-point in your notes, you can put this for verses 3 through 8. Worship the Lord alone. Worship the Lord alone. Look at the first part of verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. As I was going through this and preparing for this, I thought it was very fitting that the Lord would provide that here on Mother's Day. That we had that reminder to us. Remember, it's a a direct calling also with the law, what God establishes. We may look at this, though, with the rest of the chapter and wonder, why does God specifically put that there? Well, it's very easy for us to understand when we look at the fact that God provides parents in our lives to be authority figures over us. God provides those parent figures, and as we know through Scripture, God's design for the parent is to train up the child in the way of the Lord, to direct the child in who Jesus is, why he came to do what he did, who God is, what the Holy Spirit does when we confess Christ. All of those things point to this authority and this pointing this ultimate authority in, our, in the lives of us are, is God Almighty, ultimately, but God also provides those parental figures. So obviously, if God wants us to live holy lives and be obedient, he wants us to revere, to honor our father and our mother. Second part of verse 3, he says, you shall honor and revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. The Lord declares the necessity of keeping the Sabbath to glorify him and to rest. Verse 4, do not turn to idols or make yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Don't make an idol. Don't create something that you will worship before me. And he puts that tag there. I am the Lord your God. I take the priority over all these other things. Do not create something like that to take my place. 
We talked about that a few weeks ago, how we can easily do that in our lives. We may not even intentionally do it, but those things happen, and we've got to be alert to that. And when those things do take place, and we put those things as a higher priority over God, we must repent, and we must flee from those things and put God exactly where he is supposed to be, the head of our lives, to honor him. Verses 5 through 8 read, When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after. And anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. In verses 5 through 8, it shows this proper way to carry out worship. Remember that subsection. If we're going to have this devotion to holy living, there must be this worship of God alone. And if that is the case, we have to practice the rituals in such that God declared to be done. We've seen this all throughout the book of Leviticus. Now, in these three verses specifically, God is referencing Leviticus 3 regarding the peace sacrifice, the peace offering. The beauty of that is that it shows the way of worship both for the individual person but also the community of God's people. Because you have to remember, when they have a peace offering and they gave that peace offering, it was made for the person to rejoice in the goodness of who God is. To rejoice in that goodness, thanking God for who he is, what he has done in the person's life. And that person then invited the community to join in for a meal of fellowship. It brought them all together because of, ultimately, the goodness of God. The worship of God must be central. and It must be for him alone. The second little subsection going over to verse 19 is to walk in obedience to the Lord. Still, we're in this main point of this devotion to holy living, but this little subpoint you could say, walk in obedience to the Lord. Verse 19 reads, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. This section here is about the obedience to God because God declares there that you shall do what? You shall keep my statutes. This section here, this verse pertains to the laws governing animal sacrifice during worship and the laws concerning the personal conduct of the person. And it shows that the conduct of the people must be consistent with their worship of God. You can't just say and do these things here and then not live it out. It must be all on the same page. You must say it and you must walk it out. Your words must match your actions. Now, I'm going to read verses 20 through 22 together and I'm going to talk about it for a moment. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for that sin that he has committed. I know when we come across a passage like that, we read it and we see that in Scripture and it indicates something about slavery. 
we see that there. It talks about a slave girl. And we immediately, if you're like me, you immediately get an uncomfortable feeling. You're like, wait a minute, what is this about? And rightfully so, given the history of what we have all learned about and experienced in our country. And we've got to address something here. We've addressed this before, and I'm addressing it again. I'll do it quickly for the sake of time. But we have talked about this before. In regard to this, slavery in biblical times and what we're reading about here is not the same type of slavery that we know and are brokenhearted for in this country, that, that we know we're decades worth of slavery. You see, here in this passage, it's not talking about the unbiblical, ungodly form of slavery because based on a person's skin color. That is sin. We're calling it like it is. That is wrong. In this sense in the biblical, this biblical time period, this was based on economics. And so a person that was in slavery during that time period, they would even go and seek out being bought as a slave to pay off a debt. It was something that was sought out. It was not somebody going and taking somebody, kidnapping them, and mistreating them horrifically, killing someone even. That is wrong. That is nothing of what it's talking about here. We know that the slavery that we are all accustomed to, that we are familiar with, it is sinful because, as Genesis 1.27 says, and it's on the screen, you can write it down, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Human beings are created in the image of God. And therefore, because of that, their lives have value, period. It's worth noting, too, that taking a person against their own will, like we know happened during slavery, it's worth noting that in biblical times, if something like that happened, the person will be put to death. The person who which kidnapped them and did that, they would be put to death. Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So we have to make sure we understand the distinction. It's not referring to slavery in the sense that we would automatically think about, given the history of our country. Now back to verses 20 through 22. We're talking about walking in obedience to the Lord in this section. Living a holy life. This is regarding a slave woman, yes. But in this instance here, when it's talking about it, she's betrothed to another man. You got to remember, when we have that word betrothed, it's another way of saying engaged. So it's not uh, the, the fact of they're just hanging out. No, there's adultery taking place. And it's a sin. It's not holy living. It's not the marriage with someone that was in slavery like that because of the economics that was the problem. It was because of the sin of adultery that was taking place again. This would typically be punishable by death, but here the Lord shows grace, as we read. And the man who did this would need to bring his compensation, a ram for a guilt offering before the Lord for his sin. That was valuable. So it had to be done to make atonement for his sin. And as we know from what we've talked about previously, the priest would go and offer that sacrifice to God. And as long as it was followed correctly the way in which it was, 
it would bring what? A pleasing aroma to God. And the person would be forgiven. Again, why is that such a serious matter in that instance? Adultery is serious. Adultery is sin. It's sin just like any other sin. And it's not holy, obedient, walking, following the Lord. And so it must be addressed. Verses 23 through 25 say, When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all of it, all of its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. These verses deal with the planting of orchards. And notice there in verse 24, it indicates the fact that the first fruits are being given to God. After three years of letting the harvest take place, letting it grow, that fourth year, the first fruits of it would be given to God. It was a way of praising God and offering it to God. And then in the fifth year, they could take it and eat for it themselves and enjoy it. Why the three years? Well, as we see all throughout Scripture, I just love to always point out the fact that God always references the number with three. And we think about that with the resurrection account. But not even that. In those times, it would take about three years for an orchard to grow to the full capacity of what it would need to be. And so after that time had happened, after it had grown, in that fourth year, man, it's ready. Let's dig in. No, 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 no. You give the first fruits of it to God because he is worthy of that. He's worthy of it. He's worthy and deserving of that. And in doing so, you know, it, it makes us think and stop for a minute and say, wait a second, they had to give their first fruits there to God. That's difficult. Because, man, all that time had passed, and I have to give this to God. But we really needed that. Or, man, we don't have much. But then the fifth year, God provides, and they're able to partake. I think that's a powerful message for us, even in that little section, to remember. And I'm not just talking about finances, if that's where your mind's going. With any and all things, good things that we have, we offer them to God as first fruits. And in doing so, it may be a sacrifice for a period of time, but we trust that God will continue to be with us as he promises he always is, and that he will provide. That's holy living. That's walking in obedience and trusting the one who promises to never leave us nor forsake us. We have to remember those things. Gordon Winham, in his commentary, he says this, By dedicating the first of everything to God, the man of the old covenant publicly acknowledged that all that he has was from God, and he thanked him for that blessing. Man, that'll preach. Everything that we have, yeah, we may work hard, but everything we have is given to us by God because he is sovereign over this world. He is sovereign over our lives. Thanks be to God that he is with us always. Amen? We can even see an example of this with, with giving and other things or just even our time. Amazing to see the things that God will provide for us when we are obedient to him. 
Now, again, we may not explicitly follow these, ex- these examples that we see, these commands today, but there are some applicable points for us to take away. Like, we're not going to go out and plant an orchard, probably, and wait three years and then give it to God. But some of the things that we can take would be this. We must live lives devoted to Jesus and walk in obedience to his teachings and God's moral standards for our lives, i.e., don't go out and commit adultery, <laughs> When we do so, we will be known by our fruits to the lost and dying world around us. We follow the Lord's teachings by first knowing his word and following it. And I'm reminded of a beautiful passage that we shared with the brothers at Brotherhood a couple weeks ago. It's Psalm chapter 1, 1 through 3. Listen to this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of scoffers, nor sits in the seat, excuse me, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, in all that he does he prospers. It all begins with walking in obedience with the word of God. Because there's a promise there that we see. Biblical application for us right there from Psalm 1. We see that example of the tree planted by streams of water. And the tree is continually growing and bearing its fruit. Why? Because the streams of water are continually nourishing the roots. And it continues to grow and flourish. If we are not walking in the counsel of wicked, nor sitting in the way of sinners, nor sitting in the, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers, but if we delight in the law of the Lord, if we delight in the word of God and we meditate on it as often as we can, we will be like that tree planted by streams of water. The Lord will fill us up continually with what we need through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. And we will continually grow and flourish and be used by God for his glory to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. Lastly, point number three, a devotion to loving others. A devotion to loving others. Go back to verse nine. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. Look at 10 also. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes off your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God indicates the need to provide for the harvest for the poor, the less fortunate The Lord wanted to make sure that the poor would be taken care of and promised prosperity being taken care of to the people who were faithful to Him and walking in obedience to Him. There are many examples in the gospel, too much to talk about now for the sake of time, where Jesus makes it clear to take care of the poor and those that are less fortunate. It's on the call of a follower of Jesus Christ. We take care of those that are in need. We proclaim the gospel to them. We give them what they need spiritually and at times what they need physically. All for God's glory. Verse 11 and 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. 
You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your Lord. I am, of your God, I am the Lord. Excuse me. God restates that portion there of the Ten Commandments here about how a person should treat their neighbor. God demanded integrity be shown to the people in the community. Now think about that for a moment. All the people of Israel are God's people there. God's covenant people. Therefore, God is commanding that his people show integrity and love to one another because they're family. They are people, as I quoted a few moments ago, that are created in the image of God. Therefore, just in that alone, being created in the image of God, our God is a relational God. Longing for community is what we have. Ever since the effects of the fall, we all want community. We all want relationship. That is the way in which we were designed. We care for people. We care for the flock amongst us because we are brothers and sisters. Verses 13 through 16. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall, re, shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or deferred to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor, I am the Lord. The Lord. In these verses, God describes the offenses that happen against those who are vulnerable and taken advantage of. And he references there an example in a court setting. Now, for the next two verses, 17 and 18, they tie right in there, so I'm going to flow right from that. But another little subsection, just continuing this theme of loving others. Verse 17 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. God offers a different way of handling matters, even outside of the court. He says there in 17, he first addresses the hate a person can have in their heart against another. God says to reason frankly with your neighbor. There may be times where you must rebuke. There must be times where you need to reproof, even when it's necessary. But do not store hate in your heart says, lest you incur sin because of him. If we hold hate in our hearts towards another person, another brother, another sister, another person, there's sin because we aren't loving as God has commanded us. We aren't living in holiness. But Brian, you don't understand what that person did to me. I don't. Everybody's life experience is different. And I know for some of us in this room, some of you watching online, you have way more experience in this life, even more than I do. There's been people that have wronged me in my life. And forgiveness is hard. Trying to be obedient to this and not have hate in your heart is hard. But if I can encourage you with one thing, I want to remind you of what Jesus says as he is nailed to the cross and he is dropped down in the hole as the cross hangs and his body is hanging there. The people that have just beaten him, mocked him, spat on him, whipped him, nailed him. He says, Father, forgive them. 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an example from our Lord. I don't know if there's somebody in here that needed to hear that. But don't hold the hate in your heart. Let it go. Repent and be free. Verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Here in verse 18, God gives two more don'ts. And then he says a powerful statement. One that I think is just the the major theme of all of this chapter. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's always referred to as the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. But here God takes seriously this call. And I'm going to quote to you the same verse that I opened up the sermon with. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. In 36 he says, Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is this. It's just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with every bit of yourself. And immediately along with that, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the people that are created in the image of God the same way. Lastly, that little last subpoint for the last several verses, treating others with justice. Verses 33 through 36a, very quickly. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, and you shall not do him wrong, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, just a just ephah, and a just hen. Let's stop there for a moment. This section is fitting to point out because the closing of this passage points to how prominent foreigners were with coming into the nation. They were not just the, the, the people that were born into the nation of Israel. These Israel, I mean these sojourners, excuse me, they were, they were aliens to the community. Now, the, the coming in of that, there may have been immigration that took place of the slaves who fled the neighboring co- uh, countries, or it could have been intermarriage that was taking place. But unfortunately, many of those people were taken advantage of. It's one of the reasons why God tells it on here of how they are to treat the people. God makes it clear here, and he also does it later in Numbers 15, that they would be treated with the same dignity as a native-born person. We also see specifically in 34 that he says to treat them as a native. The Lord points to the fact that they too were strangers in the land of Egypt at one point. And yet God in his divine providence and love rescued them, showing love to others. Now let's conclude with those last two verses, the second half of 36. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. God again reminds them 
that he is the Lord who brought them out of Egypt, and they must obey his statutes and rules. The people that were taken advantage of in Egypt, God rescues them out, shows them that love, that grace, that mercy. And he's telling them, if you're going to be my people and you're going to walk in holy obedience to me, then you must love the people that are around you. Remember, like I referenced from Pastor Walter's sermon, reconcile to God, reconciling to others. The same is true for us today. We who are in Christ, we're rescued from eternal damnation and separation from God. There was a point, if you're a follower of Jesus, there was a point in your life at some different time than all of us where you were living for yourself, living for your wants, your desires, living a sinful life. But God intervened and saved your soul. And there may be some of us in this room that are listening right now or watching online that your soul hasn't been regenerated. You're still walking that line of self. You have no care or worry about who God is. You have no care or worry, really, to be honest about loving people as yourself. You're just worried about yourself. And if that is the case, the Bible says it clearly. Just like all of us who are still in Christ, we're all still sinners. But the difference is that God has provided the grace through Christ Jesus for us who repent and believe. And so if you're here today and you've never done that, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. If, you, if, if something's going on, you're like, man, I don't, I'm thinking about this stuff. Something that could very well be the Holy Spirit stirring. And I want to encourage you, if that is you today, cry out to the one who can save your soul, who has paid the price on Calvary's cross. That is Jesus Christ. We're going to take a moment. We're going to quietly pray. We're going to take a moment to reflect on what God has said today and ask, Lord, what is it that you want me to take from this and continually live it out? What is it that I need to do right here, right now? Is it that you're a follower of Jesus, but there's something going on that you need to repent of and flee from? Do it. Maybe it's that you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you're like, I need to do, need to know what I need to do to be saved. Repent and believe. And I will gladly talk with you about that and lead you in that if that is what God is doing right now. But let's take a moment to stop and pray and then we'll sing our final song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are so, so good to us. 
Lord, even while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. We do not deserve the grace and the mercy that you have shown us through Christ Jesus. But Lord, we thank you for it. We are unworthy. We are sinners separated from you, but God, you intervened because you are rich in mercy. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that you intervened and that Christ Jesus came and died for the ungodly. That Christ Jesus went to that cross taking on your wrath after all that he had already been through physically. And even though he's still there, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. Even though we sinned against you and we didn't know what we were doing. Father, I pray that the words of this message, the words of your scriptures would penetrate our hearts today. And Lord, you would reveal things in us maybe that are sinful that we need to repent of and flee from in regard to loving our neighbor as ourself. In regard to the way in which we approach you and honor and glorify you because you are the Lord. You are holy. So Father, I pray and I ask right now, Lord, for every person listening in this place or online, God, that you would speak to their hearts right now. Lord, that the distractions would not start to come. Lord, the enemy wants to intervene in this moment, Lord, but God, this is your time. And Lord, whatever you are speaking, Lord, that we would listen and we would be obedient. Lord, there is a community all around us physically at this property and in our daily lives, that do not know you as the holy one true God. And God, you have divinely placed us in where we live, work, and play to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel to those people. Use us, Lord, for your will and your glory. We love you, Father. Speak now during this time in Jesus' name. Amen.